This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. There's a question. Um, have you ever done something for someone, some, something good, mind you, uh, maybe something unexpected, and something you thought that they were going to be really grateful for what you had done, only to have it spit back in your face, not literally, but more metaphorically spit back in your face? Where, where they not only rejected the gift you gave them, but it was though they were rejecting you as the giver of the gift. Now, I'm pretty sure if Jesus were here this morning, uh, he would be raising his hand to that question. Because what we see in the Gospels, they are filled with stories of Jesus displaying his power. He, he's providing some incredible gifts for people. Right? John 2, right? he, he goes to a wedding, they run out of wine, and he turns water into wine incredible gift he's he's doing incredible things for people these, these stories of signs and wonders that we've seen over these past few weeks in Matthew's gospel healing a leper uh, saturian servant Peter's mother-in-law and while many were grateful for all that Jesus had done there are stories of others who were less grateful revealing their opposition not only to his presence but to the display of his power and that's what we're going to see this morning as we continue on in our series, uh, Signs and Wonders in the Gospel of Matthew and the story of Jesus casting out demons here at the end of chapter 8. And the title, the title of the sermon, to be honest, it's a little bit misleading. Because it's, it's not really about demons. It's not really about demon possession. It's not about exorcism. If you came looking ahead hoping that's what we were talking about today, sorry, that's not really what we're talking about because it's not really what the text is about. Because this is yet another story in a series of stories that Matthew tells in, in Matthew uh, chapters 8 and 9 that gives us glimpses. We get, we get a glimpse of the healing and restorative power of the kingdom that has come, but not yet in full. We get a glimpse into the power and authority that Jesus has as king over his kingdom. And we get a glimpse of those whom Jesus has welcomed into his kingdom. These are stories that also reveal something about us. They reveal how we respond to the power of Jesus as king and to his kingdom. And so last week, just to kind of catch you up, last week we saw Jesus set out with his disciples from Capernaum there on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee up top there. This is a region that was heavily influenced by, by Jewish culture. And they, they made their way last week uh, across the Sea of Galilee through through a storm, a major storm that hit across the lake. And this morning, what we're going to see is that they came to the other side, to the southeast shore, to the, the region of uh, Gardarines there. It's an area within, uh, within the Decapolis, you'll see, the big region. And the region here, it's named after the nearby village of, of Gadar, which was about six miles inland. And, and as they pull into the docks, uh, what they would have seen is they would have seen a, a cemetery they would have seen tombs carved into the rock along the shore. And, like, and almost immediately, as Jesus and the disciples, as they step out of the boat, it says the two demon-possessed men, they met him coming out of the tombs. Now, they didn't come up and introduce themselves uh, to him saying, Hi, uh, our name is Legion, and we are members of the local chamber of commerce here in Gadara, and we just, we just wanted to welcome you to our fine land. Um, nasty storm last night, wasn't it? Vicious storm. I hope you all are okay. Your boat looks like it was in good shape, so you did okay. Amazing, though. Did you notice how the storm just went away like that in the middle of the night? 
No, this was more of a Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like, ah, when they came out of the tombs. You're awake now if you weren't before. Because these demons, they were, he says they were so fierce that, that no one could pass by the way. They were so violent, you, you couldn't get around them. They were so terrifying, you wouldn't even dare. Eugene Peterson writes, they, they terrorized the region for so long that no one considered it safe to walk down that stretch of road anymore. If you had a bully, you had to walk past after school growing up. You, you knew that you wanted to walk around that block if you could help it at all costs. And so the villagers, they, they tried to keep this under control. They tried to chain him up in the cemetery because that's where they believe demons live. So let's put him in the cemetery. But man, these guys, they were so strong that they, they broke free from their chains every time, running around day and night, screaming and making a commotion. Now, mind you, some of the details I just gave you, like Matthew doesn't include those in here. He, he leaves some of the details out that Mark and Luke include. Uh, and that's fine. Because um, while the, de the details are fun, aren't they? It's kind of fun to compare all the details. Uh, these details, they don't do anything to further the theological point Matthew's making. So he's like, why bother? It, it's always his editor had a word count or something. Uh, he didn't. He could have made it as long as he wanted. It didn't, it didn't help him further the theological point he's making, which is to give us these glimpses into the kingdom, into the king, and to who is welcome in his kingdom. So for example, uh, Matthew didn't think that we needed to know that for a long time, these demon-possessed men had not worn any clothes. He didn't think we needed to know that bit of detail, but apparently Luke did, because he tells us that. Mark's more like Matthew. He's like, yeah, that doesn't do anything. But all this, it goes to show us how these two men, they were no longer in control of their own bodies anymore. The demons, they had taken up residence in them, possessing not only their host's bodies, but their intellect, their will, their desires. They were the ones sitting in the driver's seat. And they were intent on destroying what God had created. They were inflicting physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain, psychological pain on the men whom they possessed. And as Jesus passes by, the demons, they, they force these men's bodies to the ground and controlling their mouths, the, 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 men, the demons threw them and they cry out to Jesus, what have you have to do with us, O Son of God? And here's something interesting. Remember, just a, just a few hours earlier, the, the disciples, right, the, the, these guys who spent nearly every waking hour with Jesus as of late, they have seen him perform these signs and wonders with their own eyes. They had heard his teachings with their own ears. They asked themselves on the boat after Jesus calmed the storm. They asked, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? They didn't know. And yet here's these demons who, who as far as we know, they've never crossed paths with Jesus. And they immediately recognized him as the son of God. They, need, they knew exactly who he was without him having said a word or done anything. They recognized him simply by his presence, the power of his presence. Because as Stanley Erwas writes, these demons who draw their existence from death, they are able to recognize the one who is life. 
these destructive demonic forces, they not only recognize the life-giving creative force of Jesus, the one through whom all things were created, but they are opposed to him, actively working in opposition to him. And let's pause here for a moment. Um, This isn't some first century ghost story that Matthew told around the campfire one night. Now what we're talking about here, uh, the demonic, the, the, the presence of demons, possessions of demons, this stuff is real. It was real for Jesus in his day. Right, this is the first of five stories Matthew tells of Jesus casting out demons. And, it, and that's in addition to two other references he's already made at the end of chapter 4, earlier in chapter 8. And then what we're going to see in a few weeks later on in chapter 10 is that Jesus, he's going to send his disciples out to go out and do the exact same thing, casting out demons. This was, this was real for Jesus in his day, and it is just as real for us in our day. But at the same time, did the ancient world attribute things to demon possession and demon oppression that uh, we might today attribute to other factors based on what we've learned through sciences such as biology and psychology? Most definitely. But does that advancement in science eliminate the demonic in its entirety, meaning Satan and demons, are they're, they're not real? That they, they don't have a foothold in our world? Certainly not. Right? Don't, don't drift to either extreme here. Don't drift to either extreme, attributing everything unexplainable and bad to the demonic or eliminating the presence of it as well. Does that make sense? Let's not drift to the extremes. Because Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, he, he writes that we, we wrestle, we battle against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness that we live in and the spiritual forces of evil. This is not myth. This is not make-believe. It was real in Jesus' day. It's real in our day. And these demons, they recognize the presence of God's king. They recognize his power. They recognize the coming of his kingdom. And then they're thrown off by this. They're thrown off by the timing of the whole thing. Because they didn't see it coming, at least not yet. They, they thought they had more time. And so they asked Jesus next. They asked him, have you come here to torment us and to torture us before the time, torturing us until the time? See, they, the demons knew the fate that awaited them. They knew that God's king would come one day. And that he would judge them. And that he would rid the world of them. Ridding the world of evil. And they thought they had more time. Sort of like, um, remember back in high school? For some of us, that's a long time ago. So I'm going to give you a second to remember high school. Okay, we're good? Okay, high school. uh, You're out with your friends. You're having fun. You're not paying attention to the time. You, You lose track of time. And then all of a sudden, you realize... Oh no, curfew's coming up in like five minutes and we are six minutes away from home and we have to cross train tracks. You ain't making it. So here's a test to the high schoolers in the room. Curfew. Five minutes away, you're six minutes away with train tracks. What do you do? What? I can't hear you because there's no chairs between us. Speed. Okay. Show of hands. Who says speed? The other high schooler in the room. Former high schoolers in the room. What's that little device in your pocket? 
could you do something with that? I, you, you could text mom and dad to say, I think I'm going to be about five minutes late. You could do that, right? That's just, a, just, just practical, real-world advice that we like to provide here at Redemption as part of family <laughs> ministry. Because here's the deal. Back in my day, the days of rotary phones, um, we, didn't, we couldn't just text. You know what we did? We had to scramble to find a payphone, put in quarters into this payphone, and call home if we could find a payphone. Otherwise, you know what we did if we couldn't find a payphone? Yeah, we speed. <laughs> it's really helpful that you guys all sit together. That's how the demons felt. It wasn't time yet. It, but they felt Christ's presence, and they thought they had more time. They, they, he came early. He wasn't supposed to be here yet, and they thought he, they were gonna, he was going to torment them and, and torture them until the final judgment before the time. And so they panicked. They're, they're scrambling. They're, they're speeding, and they know that Jesus, he's about to evict them. He's going to give them an eviction notice and kick them out of the bodies that they've taken over. And so they know that they got to find a new place to stay. they got to crash on somebody else's couch, some other body to possess, and, and and they also know that in the presence and power of Jesus, that, that he, God's king, God's son, standing before them, controls their destiny. The fourth century church father, John Chrysostom, he, he writes in a sermon, they who did not let others pass their way now stand completely still before the look of the one who blocks their way. They were panicked and they were frozen. They didn't know what to do. And so looking off in the distance, they saw a herd of pigs, a couple thousand of them. Enough that uh, this is probably the herd that belonged not just to a single farmer, but the entire village. Also another, uh, another clue that, again, we are in a very Gentile-centric region rather than a Jewish region because uh, pigs, remember, were declared unclean by Mosaic law. But praise God from whom all blessings flow in the new covenant that we can now have bacon. Amen? Now you're paying attention. Except now you're distracted thinking about bacon for lunch. Um, and so the demons, they beg Jesus. They're like, if you cast us out, send us away into that herd of pigs. Thinking like, that's a good idea. We've been so focused on the demons. What about Jesus? You notice how Jesus hasn't said a word yet? Now, now me, I'm scared of the dark in the basement. I run up the stairs of our dark basement, and it's not that dark. If this is me, I'm probably taking off screaming and jumping back into the boat, and we're going back right now. Yeah, but not Jesus. Now, there's no fear in him like us. There's no panic in him like the demons. There's no emotionally immature knee-jerk reaction as, re as a result of his immaturity. There's no overblown display of, of his strength as a result of his insecurity. There's no elaborate exorcism ritual, no fancy religious rite. Instead, Jesus is cool, he's calm, and he is in full control of every moment. And he says just one word. He says, go. A single word spoken by the eternal word. A word spoken in power. Granting these demons who must submit to his power permission to move. And look what happens next. 
It says immediately the demons, they came out of the men and they went into the herd of pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Mind you, pigs can swim and they drowned. Now Mark and Luke, they they include some other details. One of them is that, um, about how the the men possessed with demons, they they asked if they could begin following Jesus now. I mean, like, who wouldn't want to? Um, But Matthew leaves that out. He doesn't need that for the story that he's telling here, a story that he's included in this second of five collection of stories that he tells throughout his gospel. Because he instead, as Anglican New Testament scholar R.T. France says, this is not a story about mission, but about power. This isn't a story about mission. We'll have stories later on about mission, but not in this one. This is a story about power. It is a glimpse into the restorative power of the coming kingdom and of the king who has come. And we see that a bit more clearly here in the conclusion of the story as the the herdsmen, those entrusted with the care of these pigs who were owned by somebody back in town, much how uh, shepherds were entrusted with the care of, of, of sheep for someone else. The, these herdsmen, they... They, they, they take off because they, they have seen the most incredible thing they've ever seen in their lives. Imagine the shepherds, right? The shepherds saw angels outside the hills of Bethlehem. And what do they do? They run and they told people, didn't they? The woman at the well encounters Jesus. What does she do? She goes and she tells people. The, these, these herdsmen, they go and they tell people. They told everybody everything that had happened. Not just about the pigs, but it says especially what had happened to the two demon-possessed men. It was incredible. And they, they told the stories of how these two guys who, who lived out in the tombs for, for who knows how long, guys that they probably knew that they may have grown up with, that they may have worked with. These were two men that had names, that had families, they had wives, they had children. They told the story of how they were possessed by demons one second and then perfectly normal the next as though nothing had happened. And the best part, their wives were getting their husbands back. Their children were getting their daddies back. This this was a cause for celebration. They, They should be throwing them a welcome party. They should be thanking Jesus for the return of their two friends. But rather than sending a welcome party out to to greet and meet Jesus, what we see is the exact opposite happens. They formed a mob. They formed a mob and the entire town came out to meet Jesus. Every man, woman, and child, including likely the owners of the pigs who had drowned, possibly even the families of these two men, their wives and their kids, their friends, And they come out to Jesus, and when they saw Jesus, they begged him to leave their region, pleading with him to go away and to leave them alone, demanding that he not ever come back again. And like right about now, Jesus should be a little upset, shouldn't he? He he should be telling them like it is. He should be speaking truth, shouldn't he? Not what he did. says at the beginning of chapter 9 that Jesus, he turned around. And he got back in the boat. And they crossed over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They went back to the village of Capernaum. They went back to the Jewish world from which they had just come. 
they spent more time in a storm than they did on the shore over here. After driving out the demons, Jesus was driven out himself. Because I said, this, this isn't a story about demons. It's not a story about demon possession or exorcism. Man, it's not even a story about pigs. It's a story about power. It's a story about opposition to power. Opposition to the power of God's king. Opposition to the restorative power of God's coming kingdom. Opposition to those welcomed into his kingdom and opposition to the values of his kingdom. A kingdom that values people over pigs and possessions and property. And we continue to see this opposition to Jesus today. We see it in our world. We see it in our own lives. And we face that opposition as well at times. Number one, we, we see opposition to the power of King Jesus, don't we? We see opposition to his power, to his authority as God's king, as Lord. You know, a lot of times we're like, we're good with Jesus as Savior. We love the cross, but that whole lordship thing, that whole kingship thing, nah, 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 I'm good. I'm king. I'm Lord. New Testament scholar Michael Wilkins writes, those who encounter Jesus, we got, we got two options. We are either attracted to or threatened by his authority. We are either drawn to his authority or we are repelled by it. Think about these last few stories. The leper, the centurion, Peter's mother-in-law, the disciples in the boat. Man, these were all stories of people drawn to his presence. They were stories of people left standing in awe of this display of his power, but not the demons. No, because the demons, the demons opposed Jesus because he disrupted their mission. The villagers opposed Jesus because he destroyed their property. And before we condemn the demons, damn them to hell, sorry. But before we condemn them, let's look at their story. Like the demons, there's times we oppose Jesus, don't we? We oppose Jesus at times because following Jesus, if we're honest, it disrupts our lives. It disrupts the way that we want to live our lives. Asking him, as we saw last week, to follow him without limits. Wherever it is, he leads us. Asking us to follow him without conditions, no matter what it is he asks of us. And so like the demons, we often sometimes oppose Jesus. But also take a look at the villagers. Like the villagers, there are times where we oppose Jesus because following Jesus comes at a cost. A cost that we're not always willing to pay. Asking us to lay down our lives and to pick up our cross, not occasionally, but daily, and follow him. And so it's easy to find ourselves threatened by the power and authority of Jesus. Because even if, even if you grew up in the church, I think what we come to see over time, the more and more we sit in the gospels, is that the words of Jesus might not sound like what you thought and the way of Jesus might not look like what you were taught. There's opposition to the power of King Jesus. Second thing we see here in the story is opposition to the restorative power of his kingdom. A kingdom that has already come but not yet in full. And there are those in our world today who much like the demons, they are dependent on the oppression of others for their own well-being. Who they are dependent on remaining in power by ensuring others have no power, have no voice, have no access or agency. 
But man, when you look at the entirety of Scripture time and time and time again, we see God calling his people, God calling us, those whom he has empowered with a voice, to give a voice to the voiceless we see in Proverbs 31. Using the power that he has entrusted with us to seek justice and correct oppression we see in Isaiah 1. Delivering from the land of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed of their dignity, their humanity, their security, the prophet Jeremiah says. Because God has invited us, he has empowered us as followers of Jesus to not only care for creation and continue in the act of creation, but to participate in the renewal of God's once very good creation, living as a light to the nations. Amen? That is what we have been invited into. Not only with the words that we speak, but with our actions as the hands and feet of Jesus in our world. And what I think we all know to be true is that our pursuit of the well-being of others, our pursuit of justice in the name of Jesus will be met with opposition, won't it? It'll be met with opposition. Especially by those who feel their power is being threatened. Not just from those outside the church, but even by those within the church as well. Our own brothers and sisters in Christ. We see opposition to the power of King Jesus. We see opposition to the restorative power of the kingdom. Number three, we see opposition to those whom Christ has welcomed into his kingdom. Opposition when we welcome who Jesus has welcomed. Inviting the impressed and giving those without power welcome into the kingdom. Those who are struggling and hurting. Those are, who are enslaved to sin inviting them, welcoming them to find freedom in Christ, liberated by his power. And number four, we see opposition to the values of his kingdom. We see opposition to the values of his kingdom. Our, our response to the presence and power of Jesus reveals what we truly believe. When we stand in his presence, we are either drawn to or repelled by his power and authority. When the herdsmen told the village of all Jesus has done, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men, they were threatened. They were threatened, and they rose in opposition to Jesus, because to be blunt, they valued pigs over people, didn't they? That's what was most important to them. Mammon had become their God, worshiping wealth, their property, their possessions, clinging to their comfort and financial security, valuing their own well-being over the well-being of others. Dale Bruner writes that mammonized personalities, those who worship wealth, will not see what happens to people. They're blinded by it. You can't see it. All they see is what happens to their own business, to their own bottom line, to their own pigs, whatever that might be. The words of Jesus throughout the Gospels. They constantly and consistently reveal how the values of our world, a world who values pigs over people, is constantly at odds with the values of his coming kingdom that values people over pigs. And the way of Jesus, now what we see throughout scripture, the way of Jesus is a way of humility. It is a way that, that counts others more significant than ourselves, looking not only to our own interests, but the interest of others. And mind you, those are not my words, those are God's words. Willingly laying down our rights and our lives for the well-being of others as we bear one another's burdens no matter the cost, no matter where Christ leads. And so when we value what Jesus values, 
when we value welcoming who Jesus welcomes, when we live our lives as citizens of his kingdom, as faithful subjects to our king, we're going to face opposition as well. You don't need to be a martyr and go find it. It'll find you. And in those moments when that happens, I, I want us to go back and I want us to notice. Notice how Jesus responds to the opposition he faced. He didn't wield his power against others, fighting back against them, violently defending himself, going off on some social media tirade, shaming those who opposed him. He didn't wield his power against others, but he also didn't wield his power over others, forcing himself upon them, humiliating those who opposed him. He didn't do either of those things. He didn't abuse or misuse the power that he had. Instead, Jesus used his power to love. He used his power to love those who opposed him, to love those who were his enemies and his enemies of God. Living in opposition to God, Jesus laid down his life for you. He laid down his life for me. He laid down his life for us as his bride. Reconciling us to God. That's why the message of the cross is foolish to so many, but the power of God to those of us in Christ, Paul says. And then through the ultimate display of power, he defeated death. He rose to life. Our king victorious, alive, actively reigning, all-powerful king of kings and lord of lords. Amen? The one to whom every knee will bow. That's the glimpse this story gives us. A glimpse of our king and his kingdom. And that is why instead of begging Jesus to leave as the villagers did, we cry out for his return, crying, come Lord Jesus. That is our cry. That is our prayer. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.